Well, the offer sounded too good to be true. I want you to listen to how Coastal Constructors Southwest Ventures described their plan to build the highest structure of luxury living in the Rio Grande. Dubbed the Ocean Tower Condominium in South Padre Island, Coastal Constructors described their project in these words. We see this as a great opportunity to to get a bargain right now on what will become the finest quality built tower in the best location on South Padre Island. The views and the amenities are unmatched. The units are some of the largest on the island. And then they go on to kind of describe some other details about it. 31 stories of unprecedented views over the ocean next to the Mexican border. Amenities will include, in each condo, Italian marble floors, granite countertops, stainless steel appliances, custom cabinets, stainless steel fixtures, oversized jacuzzi tubs, and stand-up showers. Construction began, but in May 2008, the developers began to notice cracks in the foundation of the structure. The first thing that they noticed was they began to be massive cracks in the pillars that supported the building. And then they noticed cracks in the exterior walls of the building. As you can imagine, this is a problem. This is not what you want to see after you've promised so much to your people. How do you think this ends up? As you can imagine, construction ceased and the building sat vacant until September 2009, when the only option was to bring the building down. According to the engineers, and this is not to trigger the engineers that are here, the expansive soil beneath the tower began to compact, causing the building to sink and lean. Some called it the leaning the tower of South Padre Island. Some estimates say that with what you're fixing to see, about $65 million of the $75,000 bank loan disappeared into the rubble. And if we had audio, it did so to the cheer of people in the community videotaping it. Despite all the good intentions and all the dreams of luxury living, the investor's plan, and the retiree's hope of holidaying by the sea, the excitement was not enough to sustain the weight of the great 55,000-ton structure. The foundation was faulty, and the results were devastating to the buyers and to the builders. The story of the Ocean Tower condominiums in South Padre Island provides a vivid picture of what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, regarding the importance of a robust and unshakable foundation. And that is where we are going to look this morning. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. I would invite you to stand with me out of respect for the reading of the Word of God. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise builder who built his house on the rock. The rain came and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish builder 
who built his house on sand. And the rain came down, and the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. You may be seated. Whether we realize it or not, each of us who are married, who are planning on getting married, or who hope of getting married, are building something far more valuable than an oceanside condominium. Marriage as God's idea is infinitely more valuable than buildings that house luxury getaways. And as you can imagine, the foundation of marriage, the rock upon which it is built, must be strong and it must be unshakable. It must be able to withstand the storms of life that will doubtlessly come. And my hope this morning is to point us to this sure foundation, the rock upon which our marriages must be built there to last. Would you pray with me again? Father God, we are in need of your help, your wisdom, and your spirit's power. Lord, I pray that you would guard me from error, that you would bless your people. Lord, and those that are uh, struggling this morning would find hope. We ask all this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. The words we read in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, are a conclusion to Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Now, when I first got here in 2019, we went through an entire series on the Sermon on the Mount, so I'm not going to rehash all of that. I will tell you, though, it is available online if you want to take a deeper study of the Sermon on the Mount. We've looked at this in greater detail before. So this morning, what I want to do is kind of go back, starting in chapter 5, and we're not going to have the verses up, and we're going to be kind of moving through some of the themes here, so don't worry. All the notes are going to be available online as well later on. But I want us to go back through and look at what Jesus has taught in the Sermon on the Mount as it relates to these principles that provide the foundation, the rock beneath a strong marriage that lasts. So we begin with Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 11, which are often referred to as the Beatitudes, where Jesus extols the importance of thinking of these things. Being meek, merciful, peaceful, and having joy even in the hardest and most difficult of situations. Jesus is saying is there's some sort of God-given peace that comes and is granted to those that put their trust in him. Interestingly enough, is following this talk about the attitudes of meekness and God-dependence and mercy and peace and joy, Jesus begins to talk about marriage. He talks about marriage in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, where we see the importance of guarding our lives against the lust of the world that rob us of the joy and satisfaction that God has intended within marriage. Specifically, we see that Jesus intends for our sexual affections to be reserved for our spouse alone. Furthermore, we are to be faithful in the vows that we make to our spouse before God and before others. We should not walk into and out of marriage as if it's nothing. We are to be committed to our spouses. Husbands, the only person that you should love more than your wife is God. Wives, the same is true for you. God above all, then your husband. And yes, this means that you have a responsibility to love your children, I mean, love your spouse more than your children. Why is that the case? We've talked about this as it relates to um, marriage in Deuteronomy. Here's the reality. It's because one day, moms, hear me on this, your children will leave. It's what they're told, that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to launch, (laughs) 
move out, get married. They're to leave and cleave to someone else. It's what God's plan and intentions is from the beginning. But your spouse, God intends for you to love them until death does you part. You are to be faithful, loving them above all other people in the world, loving them more than your children. And by loving them more than your children, you actually provide the most stable environment for your children to flourish when your kids know that you are committed to their mother or their father. We must love our spouses more than our careers. No matter how much money we make, or how many benefits we enjoy, I think this is one of the most deceitful ploys in the West that the devil has deployed against Christian marriages. One of the greatest lies that we've bought into is that we ought to sacrifice the health of our marriages as long as we're making a good living for our families. Men, this is something that I find particular to be the case, that we are good at rationalizing. We tell ourselves, I'm doing it for them. If I, if I stop doing this job, what would we do as a family? But deep down, I think we all know that we aren't just, quote-unquote, doing it for them. We are doing it for ourselves. We are doing it for the, the affirmation, the glory, the attaboys, to keep up with the Joneses and the Smiths, to have those nice things. But brothers and sisters, let me speak to you very clearly this morning. If your career is making you pick between it and your marriage, Always pick your marriage. You can find another job, and despite what your company tells you, you are replaceable. But your spouse and your family shouldn't have to do that. They should not have to provide another spouse because you are missing in action. But what will I do? How will I provide for my family? If I leave this career, you have no idea how well I provide. Yes, it's it's destroying my marriage, but, but what about... What about all the money that I make? It's funny. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 5-7. through And if he is who he says that he is, and he will do what he says he will do, you simply don't have to worry about whether or not you're going to have enough when you need it. Does he not clothe the flowers of the fields and provide food for the birds of the air? And if he cares for those things, are you not more valuable than the birds and the flowers? You can trust him to take care of you enough to obey him. But don't dare walk away thinking, it's okay for me to disobey God because I'm obeying him in this area to provide. I'm not saying it's not important to provide. I'm just saying that we cannot buy into the lie that we have to provide at such a level that we are justified in sacrificing our marriages. We must recognize that we're building something far more valuable than a net worth. God is God and he will take care of us. Now, in talking about marital fidelity and faithfulness, are there not exceptional cases where marital infidelity in the form of adultery, abandonment, or abuse may impact the dynamic of a lifelong marriage? Yes, certainly, Jesus is aware of this. Marriage in a fallen, broken, sin-sick world will not always work out the way we hope or even how God originally intended before sin entered into the world. Sometimes divorce will occur, and when it does, it will be hard, it will be tragic, it will be painful. Many times it will have lifelong consequences that even those that may be the innocent party in it have little to no control over. What do we expect when sinners get together? Surely to be some sin in the midst. 
But our default as Christians ought never to be to take marriage lightly or to embrace divorce joyfully, as if sin in this world has somehow altered God's ideal for marriage. I'm going to say something that's, that, that, that 50 years ago would not have been controversial, but here we are. God's ideal for marriage is between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And regardless of how society promotes divorce as neutral or even a good thing as Christians, we are called to view marriage in light of what God has revealed for us. Obviously, this has implications for much of the public debate, debate that swirls around marriage in the United States. Governments seek to redefine what marriage is, but marriage does not belong to the government to define it. Marriage is not endlessly malleable. It's his idea, like the potter over the, the clay. He has shaped it, and he's formed it, and he's made it for an intention. And those that don't like that don't get to change that or break that or redefine it in the words of respect. This means that so-called homosexual or same-sex marriages are not marriages in God's eyes, and Christians should not regard them as such. They are not his design and ideal. These things are simply not up for debate. God is the maker of marriage, and as such, he is the one who gets to decide how it will be designed, and how it will be respected. The same is true for divorce. In addition to teaching us, though, on the importance of faithfulness in marriage, Jesus also teaches us about the importance of generosity, particularly as it relates to each other's. This was the one that hit home close to me. Maybe you will see yourself in some of this. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, Jesus is talking about this principle of an eye for an eye. Lex talionis is the term for it used in legal literature. He's talking about it primarily in a civic context, in a personal matter. So when one person had been disrespected in the community by another person, which is the idea of when somebody slaps you on the cheek, it's likely not a physical assault. How we tend to, and they tended to respond, was the disrespected person felt free to disrespect the disrespecter. According to Jesus, this ought not be the case. Now, how does this work for marriage? Your spouse says something hurtful to you. How do you want to respond to them? You want to respond by saying something hurtful as well. You think... Oh, you're going to hurt my feelings? Going to hurt your feelings. And here's the really sad part. The longer you're married, the better you get at knowing how to hurt your spouse's feelings. You're like, oh, I know what buttons to push. I know how to make them jealous. I know how to use just enough silence to make them feel estranged. I know the types of things that will make them insecure. We know how to use the tone of our voice to cause doubt and to hurt. Is this the generous spirit that Christ has called us to? When he tells us to love our enemies? To not return evil with evil? I mean, what if we got a hold of that in our marriages? What if when your spouse used harsh words to you, your response was not retribution, but grace and mercy and forgiveness. You know, that's not how it's been taught. That's not, that's not the way the world works. Yeah, that's the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount. 
the Sermon on the Mount takes the values of the world and turns them on their head and says that we are called to live a higher calling as followers of Christ. Generosity is explicitly related to this idea of love, which is the next thing that we see Jesus talk about in his sermon. Keeping in mind, keep in mind that when Jesus concludes his sermon, he talks about building your life on these things. He's talking about all these principles that we're looking at. Meekness, joy, peace, love, forgiveness, generosity, faithfulness. We're called to be loving. Oh, how our spouses ought to know how much we love them. This comes, as I said, from Jesus' instruction in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, where originally he's instructing his disciples on how to love their enemies. Now, I'm not suggesting this morning that your spouse is your enemy. Don't, don't hear that, okay? Instead, I'm saying that we, if we're called to love our enemies, surely an implication of that is that we ought to love our spouses, right? How much more ought we to love those to whom we have committed our lives before God and others? Now you're thinking, okay, how does that really work? Let me give you a personal example. And here's the, here's the problem with sermon series on marriages and sermon series on parenting, two of which we're doing this year. We're doing a sermon series on marriage or doing a sermon series on parenting. Is for you to think that I stand up here as if I'm somebody that has perfected these things or practices these things perfectly. You just weren't here whenever I told you that when y'all hired me, you're not getting a perfect person, okay? So if you stand and sit there and look at me and go, oh, I bet his marriage is just, you know, butterflies and perfume. I will include enough personal examples to sway you not to think that way. So here we go. One example of how this idea of love may work in a marriage. In my marriage, Hannah and I are very communicative. We communicate very well and often. I take out my frustrations with other people on her. So what does that look like? So say, for instance, I have a, a church member, which let me go and say this. This is very, this is exceedingly rare at Copperfield, okay? But I haven't just Copper, I haven't just pastored Copperfield, so a lot of times my examples come from other experiences. So I don't really have this much here, okay? So don't think, oh, who's, who's beating up the pastor? Not you. I mean, I don't know, as far as I know, not you. So I have this church member, you know, or someone from the community comes in to my office or anonymous emails or letters, and they're venting issues to me about the church. Believe it or not, this happens. It comes with the territory of leading an organization. I was told one time uh, that if you want to uh, make everybody happy, go sell ice cream, don't lead. Now, my typical response to receiving such criticism, this is pretty much what I do. I smile, I nod, I affirm. I say words like, I hear you. <laughs> and some of you are probably thinking, he's done that to me. It's not always, but I'm just telling you how this works. I hear these complaints, and I tell them I appreciate their perspective and willingness to share it with me. Sometimes that's very true. Okay? Sometimes I just don't appreciate it. But I don't express my lack of appreciation to them. I'm, 
I like peace. I'm not a big fan of conflict. Unless it's my marriage, apparently. Because I come home later that evening, and Hannah and I are having a very reasonable conversation about our monthly budget, or chores in the house, or the dishes that I promised I would do. And she raises a perfectly reasonable point of concern. And how do I respond? Oh, honey. Smiles, nods. Thank you so much for bringing that to my attention. I appreciate that. No, no, no. All of the bent-up, suppressed frustration from others gets taken out on her. That is wrong. I'm aware of the fact that it's wrong. And that is not to say that I should go be harsh with those that have comments, but rather, if I show kindness to them, how much more to my bride? I don't, I don't wanna, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand and say, oh, I identify with that. But are there others in your life that you treat better than the one that God has committed you to and united you to in such a way that you are considered one flesh. And this one pierces my heart. Hannah will tell me at times, you would never speak that way to other people. And she's right. That's unloving. If I treat other people well, my wife deserves my best. I'm tired when I come home. Get over it. I had a really long, hard day. That does not justify your mistreatment to your spouse. Think Jesus was tired? Of course he was at times. He never transgressed. He never sinned against those that he was called to love and even those that hated him. He loved them. But you and even I protest, but they sinned against me. They don't, they don't deserve grace. But don't you see, that's part of the keys to building a marriage on the rock, building a marriage on Christ. Demonstrating grace and forgiveness was never about who deserves it. If God were only gracious to those who deserved it, nobody in this room would receive grace. Grace is a gift. It's never earned by those that receive it. And Jesus draws this out when he talks about it in his model prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. When he teaches his disciples how to pray daily, he tells them, ask for forgiveness for your sins, and then there is a relationship between us asking for our sins and the way that we are willing to forgive others. Forgive those who have also sinned against us. Now, In the weeks ahead, there is a dynamic that we're going to look at and what it means to forgive in a relationship and how to be peacemakers in marriage. But for now, I want us to see that there's an undeniable relationship between the grace that we want from God and the grace that we extend to others. If we are really going to understand and get the magnitude of God's gracious forgiveness of our sins, how could we not be people filled with forgiveness and grace toward others? It is such an unhealthy place to be as a Christian, to believe that you deserve grace and forgiveness, but somehow others do not. That is not the way of Christ. 
For as we are told in God's word, we are to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. At times, this may mean that we hold out the offering and being willing to forgive while those that sin against us don't even acknowledge that they've sinned. Admittedly, this is a tough spot. This is the world that we live in. And there is far more to be said about this that we're going to look at in a few weeks. We're going to have a whole panel on peacemaking and conflict in the context of marriage. But at least for now, you need to see that you do not need to live or have to live in the bitterness that refuses to forgive. What God has done for us empowers us to forgive and be reconciled in our conflicts in supernatural ways that confound the conventional wisdom of this world. So let me sum up what Jesus has said as it relates to building our life, our marriages on the rock. According to Jesus, the teachings of God's word as expressed and explained by Jesus are the rock upon which we must build our marriages. You probably saw that one coming. If our marriages will be lived and enjoyed for the glory of God, then we must be marked by meekness, mercy, peace, joy, faithfulness, generosity, love, and forgiveness. These principles, which characterize all of our relationships in the Christian life, are the bedrock of a strong marriage. And that's a tall order. Meekness, mercy, peace, joy, forgiveness, generosity, love, and forgiveness. This is beyond our natural ability and strength. Who among us goes, oh yeah, I got that. Meekness, that's me. Which if you raised your hand in approval of meekness, that would show you're not meek. (laughs) It's like you thinking you're the most humble person in the world. Who thinks that they can embody these? Husbands and wives are here today listening online. Oh, brothers and sisters, friends of Copperfield, such questions must drive us back to Jesus, the one who called us to such a life. Here's the beauty. Jesus gave us more than principles to live by. He also gave himself. Jesus gave us more than principles to live by. He also gave us himself. Listen to what he says in John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, when Jesus was teaching, he knew that the life that he was calling us to was a life that was fully dependent on him working within us. We do not have the strength, the resolve, the brain power, or anything else from within us that will enable us to live with the meekness, the mercy, the peace, the joy, the faithfulness, the generosity, the love, and forgiveness in our marriages that we so desperately need. If our marriages are going to be built on the rock, the unshakable foundation of Jesus' words, then our most desperate need in the world It's to abide in him, to be found in him, to trust him, to look to him, to be filled with his meekness, his mercy, his peace, his joy, his faithfulness, his generosity, his love, his forgiveness. How do I forgive my wife? How do you forgive your husband whenever they have wronged you and hurt you and and, and hurt your feelings? And you go, I don't have the, the forgiveness that that's going to take. I don't have that in the bank. I don't have the bank. I don't, I, don't have, 
I don't have that type of reserve. That's the beauty of what it means to abide in Christ is that we draw upon his wealth, his resources, his mercy, forgiveness, grace, love, peace, and joy. Apart from him, you can do nothing. But if you abide in him and he and you, you will bear much fruit. Christian, today, build your marriage on this reality. Build your marriage on the reality, the strong foundation of who Jesus is and what he has called us to. Yeah, but you know, you know, Pastor, you, sh- you, started, this, you started this sermon with a, pictures and videos of a, of a failed building project. I, I think I resonate far more with what I saw in that video than what you're saying. I, f- I feel like the, foundation, the foundations have just been broken for so long. Now, that's the beauty of the gospel, the goodness of Jesus Christ. Unlike condominiums that have to be imploded, the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to repair, rebuild, and renew the brokenness by making us new. Your marriage is not a lost cause. We don't have to say, well, that's it. Hit the reset button. The gospel comes in and invades our hearts and our minds and transforms us from the inside out. And as I experience love, forgiveness, peace, joy, meekness in Christ, I then begin to be able to model it toward my spouse. That is the only hope for our marriages this morning. It's not for you to leave with a checklist of all the things that you have to do better, but that you would run to him and say, Lord, would you be in me? Would you give me your peace? Give me your meekness. Give me your strength, your love. Help me to love. Help me to forgive. Help me to be a generous person toward my spouse and my family and my friends and those in the community. For your glory, Lord. If you don't abide in me, I can do nothing. But if you abide in me, I will actually bear fruit. That's what it means to build our marriage on the rock. If you say, I would love to know more about how I can do that. I'm going to give you two resources and then we're going to pray. First resource that we have available is we have a marriage mentoring program at our church where trained couples will walk with couples through the process of seeing their marriage healed and grow. There are many stories of people that could come up on the stage and testify to that ability. You don't have to be a member of the church to participate in that. That is available to all. If you would like more information about that, you can see us at the table in the back. You can see us out front. There's also details about it in the small group area. The second option, and she's not aware that I was going to give her a plug for this though, we're blessed at Copperfield Church to house an on-site counselor. Amanda Wisenhut, she is a licensed professional counselor at New Hope Center for Counseling of Houston. I may have butchered that name, but I'm sure it's New Hope Counseling Center of Houston. There we go. And she's independent of us. She's a part of Copperfield Church as a member of our church. She has the ability and the skills to provide expert counseling in this area this area of marriage and family. And so if marriage mentoring would be an option to help you, it's available. 
Professional counseling is an option that's available. It's here in-house, and we would love to help you connect with her as well. You don't have to try to figure out how to move and do this on your own. God is gracious in giving us people in our lives to grow and heal together. And so my hope this morning is that you would build your marriage on Christ. And if you want more help in learning how to do that, we would be delighted to help you. As you reflect on the message this week, feel free to reach out to our staff by emailing care at copperfieldchurch.com. We would love to hear from you and pray for you. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and our other podcast, Equip for Good. Thanks for listening.